We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks, for your name is near. We recount your wondrous deeds. At the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. When the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is I who keep steady its pillars, Salah. I say to the boastful, do not boast, and to the wicked, do not lift up your horns. Do not lift up your horns on high, or speak with haughty neck. I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. All the horns of the wicked I will cut off, but the horns of the righteous will be lifted up. Those are the first five verses and the last two verses of Psalm 75, which along with Psalm 76 are the psalms appointed for today, Saturday, July the 31st, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm John Green, and I'm your host. Thanks for being along today. We're continuing our study in uh, 2 Samuel today, which is we're following through the life of David. And then we're also in the book of Acts following Paul's missionary journeys in chapter 17, verses 16 to 34. And then we're with uh, Mark's gospel, the eighth chapter, the first 10 verses of that book. Today, what we've got is um, David... (coughs) who has just conquered, remember, Jerusalem and has moved to Jerusalem after King Hiram of Tyre built him a home there. David is in Jerusalem, but the uh, Philistines continue to be a thorn in David's side, and they come up and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And when David inquired of the Lord, he asked the Lord, what do I do about these people? How do I handle this? Um, and, And the Lord responded and said, you don't go up. Go around to their rear. And come against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself. For then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did exactly that and struck down the Philistines. So what he's hearing is the Lord's army marching in the tops of the balsams. And so knowing that that all David's going to do is basically a cleanup operation after that because the Lord's army has fought fought against the Philistines and won the battle and David's just doing mop up for the Lord essentially and so so he is hearing this marching sound of marching in the tops of the balsams and he goes up against the Philistines and then later he gathers the chosen men of Israel 30,000 it's interesting that we get these numbers like this and David's just hammered and judged uh, by the Lord for conducting a census in a later time but here he he takes 30,000 men with him and they arise and went with all the people with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned upon the cherubim. So it's a free hand now because he's wiped out the Philistines. And so now he can go and take all this army, 30,000 men, to go get the ark. Can you imagine what that scene would actually have looked like? I mean, I think we, we kind of have an idea that there's this ragtag band of people that go and get the ark. It's 30,000 soldiers go to get the Ark of the Covenant. And, and remember, it had been captured by the Philistines and, and then ended up in their sanctuary first, and then it moved from place to place because uh, outbreaks of plague kept going wherever the Ark of God went. And, and then they sent it away. And so now it's been, been there for several years now. It has been gone. And so they go down to get up, get the Ark of the Covenant and bring it back. And they carried the ark on a new cart 
Now that's an, uh, an interesting thing because that's not the way you, you move the ark. I, I've mentioned this before, but the ark was fitted with rings across the bottom of the ark and, and poles specially made for the purpose were inserted through those rings. And so you had one person at the back, one person at the front on each side who carried the ark. Nobody touched the ark that way because the poles were inserted and the poles then um, were the way you carried it. You didn't pick up the ark and move it. It wasn't wouldn't a huge thing to start with. You're talking about, about an 18-inch square box. <clears throat> so it's not a, an enormous thing. Um, but they've got to move it from place to place without touching it. And so here now, they put it on a new cart. And, you know, remember, it's been gone a long time. Who knows what happened to the poles during that period of time. And so they put it on the new cart, and they begun come to the floor threshing floor of Nakon, Uzzah, who's one of those who's, who's in whose home it's been, reaches up to steady it because one of the ark, one of the oxen stumbled, and so he reaches up to steady the ark. And as soon as he does, he struck dead in that place because he dared touch the ark. He'd become too comfortable with it, and and the people needed to know that it was inappropriate to reach out and touch the ark in this way. You know, you, you kind of want to say, well, it's too bad that Uzzah happened to be the one who got um, kind of hammered for this i mean he dies because he does this but but they need to know you got to do things exactly god's way and if you don't even if you're his chosen people if you if you transgress against the commandments concerning the holy things of god then then you're liable to die just like as i mentioned earlier uh in a sermon actually a few weeks ago just like the sons of aaron died when they brought quote strange fire to the altar that day and he is he's zealous for the ark he wants to make sure that nothing happens to the ark but touching it is still out of bounds and david got upset about it and so to that day even whenever the writing of second samuel occurred the place was still called perez uzzah which is breakout against uzzah to that day and david was afraid that day he says well how do you bring the ark up then we're not sure what to do. And so David wasn't willing to take it into the city. He didn't want any more people to die. But he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. who's <laughs> not, not even a Jew, but he's living among the Jews. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household while the ark remained there for three months. But we've got to handle holy things with, with great care. And we've got to be reminded of what that means. And, and, and again, I, what I believe is, I believe it's the testimony and the truth of the gospel is what's been handed down to us, and that we've got to treat that with incredible care. And, and that means we have to treat Jesus and the way we speak of him with incredible care. And that's the reason it's so offensive um, when, you, when you look at what, what I mentioned yesterday, which is that, that they were saying that Jesus' um, encounter with the Syrophoenician woman is evidence that Jesus was learning as he went along, and he had to learn not to be a racist. Yeah, you're not handling the things of God with the appropriate respect if you're suggesting that it was possible for Jesus to be a racist. So we've got to make sure that when we handle uh, our language about Jesus and our teachings about Jesus, that we never in any way diminish him, that we never become so familiar with him that we forget that he's holy and that we forget that, that he alone of all beings in heaven and on earth and under the earth was found worthy to open the scrolls and to approach the throne in Revelation 5. And we we need to be more careful with the holy things of God in that way because I think we can become too familiar with him, especially in, in, in the charismatic world. We can get so um, wrapped up in the imminence of God, the Holy Spirit, God within us, that we forget 
that that Jesus is holy and other while at the same time being our brother and our savior and we need to be extremely careful with that we need to not get too familiar that we forget the holiness of God and that we let the fear of the Lord retreat from our eyes it's it's a delicate balance to walk and sometimes I think we don't do it all that well to be perfectly honest with you in, in the gospel today we've got is Jesus still in Gentile territory but a great crowd is gathered just like they did when it when he was in in the land and they gathered and they had nothing to eat and he called them and he says I have compassion the disciples and he said I have compassion on the crowd they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat if you think about that as sort of an exodus moment right I mean we were three days in the wilderness and now there's a there was uh, an uproar among the Jews about the lack of water well there ought to be because you need it and so Jesus has compassion because this crowd has been with him three days and they have nothing to eat. And he said, if I send them away hungry to their homes, they'll faint on the way. And some of them have come from very far away. In other words, they'll never make it home if we don't give them some sort of sustenance before that. I, I can't even um, release this crowd until we provided for their needs. They, they have come with me three days. They have persevered and stayed with me for three days I, I owe them this before I dismiss them and send them back to their homes and the disciples how could anybody feed these people with bread here in this desolate place well he did it not too terribly long before that <laughs> and he said how many loaves do you have and they said seven he directed the crowds to sit down on the ground and he took the seven loaves and having given thanks he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people and they set them before the crowd and then they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces, left over seven baskets full. There were 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat and his, with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. I'm not going to get into the whole Dalmanutha thing. Where did he go? Because, man, that's crawling down a rabbit hole. It's fascinating stuff. I, I'll post a link. Um, to, to one of the things that I found it's a scholarly study of Dalmanutha because they're not able to, re- to place it particularly anywhere. And, and it's, it's the only place that it appears in the gospel. And in Matthew's gospel, he gives it a different place name. So what, we, what I'll do is I'll post the link and be prepared to read a lot. Um, but it's, it's a, an interesting digression uh, into what's going on here. But, but it's, so we don't know, is he, is he in the land? Is he out of the land? It's very difficult to tell from reading, from, from trying to figure out where Dalmanutha is. But, but here Jesus in this Gentile land is doing the same kinds of uh, miracles that he was doing outside the land. He cast out the demon for the Syrophoenician woman. He healed the deaf. He uh, now is feeding them in the same way. And so he, he's doing these same signs among the Gentiles and preaching the same message among the Gentiles. Wouldn't you love to hear, though, exactly what it was he was teaching these Gentile people? The people who were coming, following after him because he, they'd heard all the things that he had done, but who, who didn't embrace Judaism and didn't know the Word of God, didn't know Torah, didn't know the prophets, didn't know any of that. How did Jesus preach to those people? It would be a fascinating thing. But, it, but, but that message, whatever the message was, was accompanied with these signs of power. And uh, as I've told you before, you know, having been around ministry quite a long time, the most impressive thing that happens is that when the gospel proclamation is accompanied by power, when it's accompanied by things like healings. And I'm fortunate to have recently had that happen in my own family with Will. But, but I've seen it in other places as well. I, and I met a guy 
who I had prayed with in the hospital one time. I just assumed he was a he was you know a solid believing Christian because he was a member of the church. I recognized him. I knew who he was, and but but he was he was in the hospital. And he had a heart issue and he, he needed a heart ablation or something else. And so I just went and met with him and his wife. Sat prayed with him, and everything was fine. Well, years later he came and visited when I came here to plant the church. He came and visited at the. I used to allow people at certain times, uh, we would say, hey, has anybody got anything that they've seen the Lord do they'd like to share with us? And, he, and this guy did. He was a visitor, and he was typically a really quiet guy. I was shocked that, that, that as a visitor to the church that he, he actually stood up and said, yeah, I just want to tell you, I preached on healing that day, actually. And he said, I want you to know that your pastor has gifts of healing. And I'm looking at him like, what is he talking about? And then he tells this story, and the story was is that he said, he said when, when I visited him in the hospital, he said, John, I wouldn't believe her. I came to church because, well, it kept my wife from fussing at me for the rest of the week if I went to church with her. He said, but typically I'd fall asleep during the sermon. Really didn't mean anything to me at all. He said, I'm laying there in the hospital, and he said, I'm scared to death because they told me that that um, they're going to have to either do this procedure the next day, and the procedure, the procedure was a 50-50 shot, and if not, he was going to die. He said... Um, he said, but you came in, you prayed with absolute faith, and you kept talking about, you know, Scripture and stuff, and he said, you prayed with faith that God would heal me utterly. He said, I'd never heard anybody pray like that. I'd never seen anything like that. I didn't know what to make of it. He said, so the next day they came in, and they said, we're going to have to, you know, they did a test later that day just to see exactly what they needed to do. They wanted to do it with care, and so the, so they, they came back the next day and said, we need to do that test again real quick. We had a, a, an anomalous um, result there. We need to do that test again. So they did the test and came back a couple hours later and said, well, you can go home. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, it's gone. What we needed to fix is fine. I had no earthly idea the rest of that story. All I remembered was praying with him. I never heard that story until several years later. So, but that turned this guy into a new person because of what God did for him. So when, when we see this um, epistle lesson now, you, you see Paul coming in and talking about the gods because he's invited, he's in Athens, and he is reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons. And in the marketplace, he's also reasoning with people there every day because his spirit had been provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. He also talked to Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. And they took him and brought him into the Areopagus, which was a place where the judgments, including religious disputes, were, were made. And so they bring him there and they say, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting for you bring some strange things to our ears. We want to know what these things mean. So they're going, to, they're going to decide about a religious dispute here. Now, they're doing it in a way that, that fortunate, fortunately for Paul, is not as aggressive as what he's had to deal with in the past whenever he has to deal with, with the Jews who come after him and who, who rouse up civic suspicion against Paul. And so the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend all day telling, except in nothing except telling or hearing something new. And so they were interested to hear what this new thing was because they were always trying to be most fashionable and to know what the fads of the day and the, the, uh, 
the, the, um, the popular opinion of the day was. So Paul stands in the midst of the Areopagus, and he says, I, I perceive in every way that you're very religious. And I know that because I passed along and dis- observed the objects of your worship, and you've got a lot of objects of worship. But then I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Okay, so, so you already know something. You know enough to know that these are not satisfactory in and of themselves, and so there's, there's got to be room for something else. He said, this one is the one I'm telling you about today. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by men, nor is he served by human hands, though he, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Now, that's a very different worldview from one that has a pantheon of gods. If you've got 12 on Olympus, and they're all human in their orientation, they're just sort of superhumans, for you to hear that there is a God who created everything and needs nothing from his people, that, that's going to produce a very different understanding of the world. And so Paul is telling them that there's one God. He, he's making the case for monotheism. And he's making the case for not just monotheism, but a knowable monotheism. And he made from one man, he says, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places. Now, that's typically the other way around, is that the gods had allotted time periods and dwelling places, and their spheres of influence were limited. And, and so he's saying it's exactly the opposite. And they should, He said that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him, yet he's actually not far from each one of us. And then he goes on to quote some of their poets speaking of that same thing. We're indeed his offspring. He said, yes, being his offspring, we ought not then to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. No, it's the other way around. You're creating the image of God. He says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he'll judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And now they're like, no, yeah, that, that's one step too far about this whole resurrection of the dead thing. And so some believed and said, um, we'll hear you a little bit more on this, but others just mocked him for this ridiculous claim of a God who died on a cross and was raised again from the dead. And it's the most powerful thing that we have to offer the world is the truth of resurrection because it's an eternal hope that we give in that. It's not just that I'm going to be healed today and made whole. No, the greater miracle, the greatest miracle of all is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead because that has the power to change lives permanently and gives us a different focus and a different vision. It gives us a different way of understanding the world and our place in it. This is not all there is. And that's the glorious message of the gospel.